Hello everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for tuning in, always appreciated. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I really am excited to record this because I we're talking about the history of Michigan today and I am kind of obsessed with Michigan as, as of late. So let me give you some background. I had never been to Michigan um, until I started dating my now husband. And I went there like a couple years ago for the first time for his sister's wedding. And I just really, Michigan was not what I thought it was going to be. I always pictured Michigan as like just Detroit. And, you know, as like a huge city, I kind of thought it was like run down. I didn't really like it. But the rest of Michigan outside of Detroit is literally amazing. I loved it so much. There's farms as far as the eye can see. His parents live not like in the middle of nowhere, but it's way more rural. So I really, really was surprised by Michigan. I've really liked it ever since. We go back at least twice a year. Well, this last trip, I just got back from Michigan. Um, if you are new to this podcast, I just got back from Michigan and I loved the trip. It was so fun. It was like we hit it at perfect weather. It was like 70 to 75 degrees the entire time in August, like late July, August, which is pretty unheard of. And it was just amazing weather. We went to this country fair that was just magical. Like it's always been kind of on my bucket list to do like a very legitimate country fair. And this just like fit the bill. It was basically like a stock show, a rodeo and a fair all in one. I forget if I talked about this on the last episode, but, um, yeah, it was just amazing. I made my first YouTube video like of a Michigan trip, which is really fun because I feel like sometimes I just forget the details of trips so easily. So I'm glad I, ha- I made a video to document a little bit of that. So if you want to see that and you haven't already, go to my YouTube channel, just Abby Rancor, and it'll be there with a great like little look in the fair, into the farms and all of that. It was an amazing trip. But as I was trying to research or like figure out what I wanted to research for this week, I was, I couldn't think of anything else besides the history of Michigan. Like it was just, it's always just so surprising to me because if you're not familiar, I guess, with the geography of Michigan, it's shaped like a mid, it's in the Midwest. And, but then it also has this upper, it's called the upper peninsula. And that's also part of the Michigan geography. So I was like, how did that happen where the state lines were drawn that way where we get like an upper peninsula part and then this mainland part but the upper peninsula is not even connected to the rest of michigan like it was just very confusing so i was like you know what i want to do a full history of michigan figure out why people came how detroit became like this auto center of the nation and then i had also heard that detroit had gone bankrupt so i was like how did that all happen so that landed me on doing a history of Michigan podcast. And it's honestly really interesting. Like I learned so much in researching this that I'm very excited to share. So here we go. Here is the history of Michigan. Um, okay. So as everything does in America, it starts before Michigan actually became a state. So Um, About 100,000 Native Americans were living in the Great Lakes region before, like, America was settled. Um, So that's the whole Great Lakes region, which um, 
I just recently learned the geography of the Great Lakes. There are four actually touching Michigan, but then one of them is um, Lake Ontario, which is um, more east. So not actually all of them touch Michigan. So between that entire region, there were 100,000 Native Americans that were living in that region, but 15,000 were living in the actual what is now Michigan. The main groups, there were three main groups and they were referred to as the three fires. It was the Chippewa, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. Oh wait, Potawatomi. And okay, so the Chippewa lived in mostly in the upper peninsula and the eastern part of the lower peninsula part of Michigan. The Ottawa filled the western lower peninsula. And then the Potawatomi, Potawatomi, um, were southwest Michigan, uh, and that was after they had migrated from a modern day, from like what is modern day eastern Wisconsin. So it was kind of like uh, they had moved over the course of time, and so those were the three that were settled in the what is now Michigan. So most tribes moved every couple of years, but they did cultivate some crops you know, between moves. The main ones were corn, beans, and squash that were grown and cultivated themselves. But then there was also a lot of gathering of like apples, berries, nuts, game, fish, honey, and wild rice. There was wild rice gathering, or wild rice was growing like all on the coasts of the, the lakes. And so there was a lot of good gathering that they could do there. Um, I thought it was also kind of cool that they produced maple sugar um from the sap of the trees i guess that makes sense because there's maples up there kind of by canada but um i had never really thought of that about that happening in michigan um and then they basically used a lot of trees for housing and canoes and it was kind of the start of like lumbering and uh using wood for transportation so there is a couple mysteries well there's a big mystery about michigan because the upper peninsula has a lot of copper fields it's like very you know resource dense and there's a lot of copper and historical evidence or like archaeological evidence shows that these copper fields in the upper peninsula were mined by like ancient people so i think it said i think it was like four thousand years before this they found archaeological evidence that dates back showing that these copper fields were mined and tools were created from the copper in these fields. However, once French explorers came, which we'll get to, but once French explorers came and made contact with the Michigan, you know, Native Americans, the natives there did not know about mining or the uses of copper or how to turn that copper into tools. Like that whole knowledge had like died off and they did not know so it wasn't carried down so it's interesting how these ancient um tribes were able to do that and then somehow it got lost over generations so that's like a big mystery of how that how that got lost okay then we enter into the era of french explorers the french were the first european explorers to touch down in michigan a man named Samuel D. Champlain, who actually may have never touched Michigan, but he had this effect on Michigan because he founded Quebec in 1608, which is close to Michigan. And he is said to have visited the eastern shores of the Georgian, Georgian Bay um, in 1612. 
And when he was there, he sent one of his prodigies, Etienne Brule, to find what is called the Northwest Passage, which they're always trying to find like trading passages. So he wanted to find the Northwest Passage. And Champlain advanced the exploration of the Great Lakes and he forged these alliances between tribes that were already there. But when he was forging the alliances, he, he fostered a lot of conflicts amongst the tribes. For example, there was a tribe, well, there were two tribes that were fighting. One was like traditionally an enemy of the um, tribes in uh, Michigan. And Champlain helped the enemy um, in their fight and used a musket which had not been introduced, obviously, to the Native American population. He was helping the Hurons in a battle with a small group of Mohawks, and he made an enemy of one of the strongest groups in the region. So he was kind of like stoking the flames of conflict between these groups. That incident with the musket basically made all the tribes cut their access of the French explorers, so of Champlain's party. And there was no, therefore no access to the lower part of Michigan. And as a result, this is why Champlain, even though he may have never set foot in Michigan, like really had an impact on Michigan history because that incident that cut off the access to the lower part of Michigan made it so that settlements were rapidly growing in the upper peninsula, but none were established in the Southern portion. I shouldn't say none, just many, many fewer because of the restricted access. Then French missionaries came. It sounded like they had a very, very good relationship with the tribes in the area. There was one Father Charles Rambolt and Father Isaac Jogue. Um, they preached and at this um, Salt St. Marie, which is a city there. They preached to the natives. And then there was another guy named Father René Messnard who established the first regular mission at Kawina Bay in 1660. So they like helped each other. They respected their culture. Um, it seemed like everything got along pretty fine with the French explorers. There was also another um, group of Frenchmen called the French Couriers de Bois, which basically translates to unlicensed traders. They were rugged individualists. They lived among the natives. They respected their customs, they hunted, trapped game with them, helped each other. So again, like good relationship with the French. Then the French and British tensions started to rise and the French established a settlement at Place du Detroit, which will later be known obviously as Detroit. So French and British tensions are rising. This is really like pushing both of them to have territories in this area. The French and Indian War happened. There were no major battles fought in Michigan, but the war um, ended the French era in Michigan and it really began the British era. So in November, on November 19th, 1760, the French formally surrendered Detroit um, to the British. So then we get into the British era. And again, like in the French era, they got along. The Voyagers took Indian wives. The missionaries wanted to save the, the people and help them. They gave a lot of gifts, a lot of alcohol, and they traded. They both were considered to trade fair. But the British allied themselves when they took over. They allied themselves with 
what were traditionally enemies of the Michigan tribes. So they weren't super well liked, especially right off the bat. There was an event called Pontiac's Rebellion. And Pontiac's Rebellion was a plan that was made by Pontiac, who was a native chief. And um, it was his plan by the remaining French people and the natives to oust the British. They tried to kind of have an uprising. And, um, but the British, uh, well, okay, so then it says all British forts except Detroit, Pitt, and Niagara fell in 1763. So I think Pontiac's Rebellion was kind of the lead up to this. But then all British forts, except for those three, fell. Um, then the American Revolution happened. That is like, I don't know, 10 years or so after. Well, I guess it a little more than 10 years, but the American Revolution happens. And clearly, you know, the revolution side, the American side wins. But it actually had very little effect on Michigan. It was firmly controlled by British and there was not really anyone kicking them out once America won. It stayed under British control, and the British didn't relinquish control of Michigan until 13 years after the war. Which I thought was kind of um, weird, because like we won this huge war, and then I guess I don't ever you don't ever think about like the logistics of finishing a war because it's like you have a lot of British people on the American land. And then you won this Revolutionary War. Well, there's still a lot of British people. So they just like hung out there for 13 years until America was like, okay, get out. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. Um, okay, then Michigan became a separate territory in 1805 under Thomas Jefferson. And I guess I didn't know this either, that you have a capital if you're a territory. Um, so... I guess the same thing would apply to like Puerto Rico for us, but um, Detroit was named as the capital of the territory, not a state yet, but a territory of Michigan. On the first day that Detroit, or that, uh, that Michigan was actually going to be a territory, the day that the law was gonna go into effect, the city of Detroit burned like completely to the ground. It said it was like a terrible fire in all of Detroit. And you know, yeah, it was really bad. Um, so their first order of business really was to like regain and rebuild all of Detroit. Um, okay, the natives attacked because of their alliance with the British. Like, so it didn't sound like the native and British um, relationship was that great compared to the French. But I think after like the 13 years when it was still under British control, they kind of became allies and so um the indians ended up attacking because they're of their alliance the war of 1812 happened and michigan was back under british control so they regained british control because of the war of 1812 which i need to do a full podcast episode on because i literally have no idea what the war of 1812 was really over um so that'll be coming soon um, and then the governor, which is Governor Cass, made treaties with the uh, natives between 1819 and 1821 to essentially, like, get their land. He, he basically traded um, their land rights and their property rights uh, and moved them. I think a lot of them assimilated, it was saying, because they were, you know, 
allies with the British, but there were some moved uh, forcibly and some voluntarily moved with these treaties. So once Michigan had a lot of land, then their roads could be built. The Erie Canal um, was started to be built then. And that's when farmers started moving in. Once this canal and once this infrastructure really started being established, that's when farmers and just more people could move in because it was habitable. Before this, the land was considered not habitable at all because it was so much swamp. Like you couldn't, they said that you couldn't grow anything except for really on the coast. But now with all this infrastructure and kind of, and bringing in a canal and all this stuff, this swamp land became actually like growable and farmable. So that um, started then. Okay, then in 1833, Michigan had more than 60,000 inhabitants. Well, okay, so Michigan had a lot of inhabitants, but it had the um, 60,000 inhabitants it needed to form a state government. So there was a law that said you had to have at least 60,000 that wanted to be a state and could form that government. They had that. They wanted to formally seek admission to the union. Now, the advantages of this is they get more federal money for things like infrastructure and like all the things we talked about, um, you get more federal help with that. So they wanted statehood. They drafted a constitution and it passed a vote, but there was a boundary dispute with Ohio. Now, I have heard about this for so long because somehow like I, I married a Michigander and a lot of his friends are from Ohio and they've talked about this and I never knew what they were really talking about. I knew there was like some land dispute I had no idea really what this entailed. So there's a little strip of land in between Michigan and Ohio. And it had really, I mean, it was Michigan's. And I don't think that's just me being biased, but it could have been this article being biased. It was like a Michigan-centered article. So I'm sure the Ohio state document has like some other opinion on that. But it sounded like from this that this strip of land belonged to Michigan the residents were already voting in Michigan elections and it was governed governed by Michigan laws. So it was this little strip of, of land in the middle. Well, when they became a state, a state, there was a land dispute about who owned it, who owned that strip of land. Was it Ohio's or was it Michigan's? So they took up arms. They were um, about to fight and all this stuff. It was like, it, it's been blown way out of proportion. People call it like the War of Toledo, but you know, it sounded like a very anticlimactic war. I don't even know if a shot was taken, but um, because of these arms were taken up by a Michigan governor and he, he like rallied the army to go and defend their strip of land, um, it enraged the president, Andrew Jackson at the time. And Jackson actually removed that governor from office because he did not like that. Eventually there was a compromise that gave the strip of land to Ohio and it gave the western four-fifths of the Michigan Upper Peninsula to Michigan. So that was not Michigan's. The original land or like state or territory lines of Michigan only included the most eastern fifth of the UP. So like basically what was directly above the mitt. But this compromise actually gave the rest of the four-fifths of that area to Michigan. And this would seem like a pretty good trade. You get a lot of land for that little strip of land that we give to Ohio. But people did not like this at first. And so much so that 
well, so I, I mentioned that it was in 1833 that they had the votes. They wanted to seek admission into the Union. They had drafted the Constitution. That was in 1833. People did not like this. And when it was voted to accept statehood in 1836, they denied it because of this land dispute. They hated the fact that they were giving up the Toledo Strip. Um, so finally, in the next year, like I think it was like over a year and a half later, uh, people, it was accepted in this Ann Arbor conference uh, in 1837, and it was accepted as the 26th state of the Union. So 1837, that's uh, pretty old. Okay, so once it was a state, again, you could have more money with like infrastructure, which is the main reason why a lot of people wanted to join the Union. So there were three cross-state railroads that they started building. There was a whole network of roads and a bunch of canals. So I think this is when the Erie Canal uh, was, mm, I don't know if it was finished, but like way more canals started popping up. Then there was something called the Panic of 1837. And so a lot of these projects that were started were not finished. And I had never heard of the Panic of 1837, so here we go. Panic of 1837 was because of lax banking practices. Almost anyone at that time could open a bank. So there was something about like, I think it was Andrew Jackson was like skeptical of banks and skeptical that everyone was like dirty and grimy and greedy and stuff. And so there was like this not like distrust of banks, but somehow that translated into like almost anyone could open their own bank. And so tons of paper money was being printed. There was inflation was through the roof and there was just tons of land being bought because there was just so much money being printed that everyone was buying land, printing money, buying land, printing money, all of that stuff made inflation go way high. So as a result of this, Jackson issued a directive saying that the government land could only be bought with gold or silver coin. So kind of reverted back to the gold standard. And because of this directive, tons of banks failed. Like the majority of banks failed because they couldn't keep up with this inflation and the gold standard and stuff like that. So um, that was the panic of 1837. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people um, lost their land or, you know, the banks failed and lost their money. So it was a very, very tough time. So it wasn't for a while that those projects you know, after there was a slow recovery, they weren't finished uh, right away. But eventually there was a slow recovery and um, things got more or less back to normal, it sounds like. Detroit still served as the, the capital. Well, so they, okay, so here's the story with Detroit. So as you may know, or I guess I forgot, like I always assumed Detroit is the capital because it's like one of the biggest cities. Detroit is not the capital of Michigan. The, the capital is Lansing. And so, but as you remember, um, when it was a territory, Detroit was the capital. So at some point it moved to Lansing. And this is why. Lansing was more central to Michigan. There were things like the fur trade that were huge. And so they wanted like a central place that everyone could go through um, because Detroit is so far south in Michigan. It's like on the southern edge of Michigan that it's not central to the rest of the state. It's very far away and it's just not convenient. So they wanted to find a place more central. And it also talks about this sentiment about big cities that people had. Like people thought of big cities as just a hotbed of corruption and bad things. And so 
Detroit was a huge city at this point, and so they wanted to move it to a little bit of a smaller city that was more central, and they chose Lansing. So Detroit was going to serve as the capital until 1847, and then they were going to transfer the capital to Lansing, and then they did that in 1847. Okay, before the Civil War, there was something called the Second Great Awakening. This is not just in Michigan. This is like, sounded like everywhere in the country, but it focused a lot on like human rights stuff. So like women's suffrage, education, slavery reforms, prison reforms. And there was a lot of things like institutions for the disabled, like the deaf and blind, um, a lot of institutions to help those, uh, like a lot of different people. It was just they call it the second great awakening. Um, so that started happening in 1874 voting rights was put on the ballot. Oh, I should mention because I think I like blazed right through this, but, um, the civil war happened and Michigan was strongly on the side of the union. It was, they said that basically the Republican party formed, it was like, Michigan played a big part in the Republican Party forming because they were um, anti-slavery. They they basically ran on the platform of anti-slavery with a few economic issues thrown in there. And so um, that was the start of, of that and like the two-party sort of uh, voting. Um, okay, 1874, yeah, voting rights were put on the ballot, but it was only um, women who owned property and wanted to vote on school matters. So it was very, very limited voting rights and full voting rights weren't put on the ballot until 1918, which was only a year before the, um, full amendment was passed. Okay. Um, oh, this is where I put the anti-slavery movement, um, in my notes. So the anti-slavery movement popped up. The Underground Railroad conducted a lot of business in Michigan. There were a lot of Michiganders who were um, conductors, if you will, in the Underground Railroad. And this was a great story. There was an incident where a man named Adam Crosswhite, who was a slave or a former slave. Well, no, he, he was a slave. Him and his family fled from Kentucky from their slave owners or from their, yeah, from their owner's house in Kentucky. They fled to Michigan and they stopped in Marshall, Michigan and just lived a normal, peaceful life, it sounded like, until the owners at some point came and tried to get them and bring them back to Kentucky and make them slaves again. Well, the townspeople of Marshall were not having it and they stood up to these uh, slave owners and they had them jailed and arrested and gave Adam Crossway and his family enough time to flee into Canada where, you know, the slave owners couldn't go cross the border and go bring back their slaves. Um, so they, like, jailed him, arrested him, and kept him long enough for um, the slave and his family to flee to permanent freedom. So, yeah, Michigan was definitely on the right side of that one. Um, and yeah, as I said, they were loyal to the union. Okay. So one of my big questions was how did they become a motor city? Because I remember obviously Detroit was like this huge, like auto manufacturing city and it used to be a huge, huge hub and all that stuff. So how did it become that? Well, Michigan is very naturally natural resource <laughs> rich. Um, and those resources were developed to build 
Michigan's economy. So the first thing that they did was the fur trade that was like back more in the 1800s. But then they also started copper mining. Like I was saying about the Upper Peninsula, there was a lot of copper fields. And so copper mining became a huge thing. There were also rich iron ore deposits. And in the 19 or in the 1850s, the Erie Canal, I think it was the Erie Canal, was finished. And so there was a lot of developing these natural resources, which made their economy boom. Agriculture was very important. Um, and really the big thing about the development of Michigan was the fact that so many New Yorkers and New Englanders came to farm. So as I mentioned, like Michigan was all swamp, but as soon as the Erie Canal was finished, you can kind of control the water flow and these swamplands became like not so swampy <laughs> they became completely cultivatable and so a lot of people came in from outside the state of michigan and farmed which skyrocketed the, the population um this was a great fun fact in 1855 the legislature established the agricultural college of the state of michigan which was the nation's pioneer land-grant college so this that college turned into michigan state university and originally, when it was the Agricultural College of the state of Michigan, it required students to work on the school's farms as part of the curriculum. And it like was a huge contributor to farming and agricultural research early when uh, like early in the United States history. So that was really cool. And then also when I was talking about like the Native Americans using like basically starting the lumbering industry because they would use uh, lumber for boats and houses and all that. Lumbering w was a huge industry there because there's so many trees and it led to furniture making and paper making as big industries in Michigan. So there's a lot of uh, industries that are able to boom there. Um, they were also really into animal conservation because like as more people moved in, they started hunting, fishing, they realized that like the population of the game was plummeting. And so they were, I think the first ones to establish like the role of a game warden and put limits on how much you could hunt so that they could like sustainably hunt and not make things extinct. So um, they were some of the first in that. Then from the 1850s to the 1900s was the Industrial Revolution and Progressive Movement. Um, in By 1940, because of the whole industrial boom, all the resources, all the people moving into farm, but also in this Industrial Revolution, by 1940, 60% of the world's automobiles were assembled in Michigan. So it was already like a booming automobile town by 1940. Um, it said that the Great Depression, Depression had hit Michigan very, very hard, and over 50% of the non-agriculture people were unemployed, which was way higher than the national average. Um, Michigan contributed a lot to World War II efforts, and this is also kind of around the time that unions were established. So unions helped establish 10-hour day, like work days, child labor laws, safety laws, all of that stuff but it was very ten what am i trying to say it was very tense um getting unions established now i'm not a huge fan of unions i don't like unions i do think they served a purpose at one point but it was very very tense trying to get unions established so there were a lot of sit-down strikes 
They idled a lot of workers. Like they, this union closed a bunch of shops trying to be the sole bargaining agent for workers and try to get like collective good conditions like agreed upon. Finally, GM uh, um, acquiesced, it says, and uh, recognized United Automobile Workers as the first union and they would be the sole bargaining agent for the workers. 1950s, the Mackinac Bridge was built. Now, another fun fact. I got this Michigan mug. On it, it says the Big Mac, like M-A-C at the end. So I was like, at first I thought it was a reference to fast food. I didn't know. Big Mac was like, maybe they were like Big Macs. What it was referring to was the Mackinac Bridge. But the Mackinac Bridge is spelled different depending on who you ask. Sometimes it's spelled with a W at the end, like you would think, like Mackinac, A-W at the end. But sometimes it's spelled with a C, so Mackinac. It looks like Mackinac, but you still pronounce it Mackinac, which is very confusing. So I have something on this mug that says Big Mac, even though the bridge is pronounced Mackinac, so it's really like the Big Ma. Anyway, um, if you ever see Mackinac and are confused, it's the same thing as Mackinac, and it's just spelled differently for... I do not know what the reason is. Um, Okay, then getting into like the, uh, let's see, I think it was like 60s and 70s. I think it was more 70s. Uh, There were a lot of like race riots and violence erupted over the civil rights movement because that was huge everywhere. But there was a lot of, um, you know, Michigan riots as well, which um, my husband's grandpa was actually a police officer during during those um, times, which sounded very, very tense. So um, glad we're past that. And then the Constitutional Convention happened. This was, when was this? This must have been, I forgot to put a date. But there was a Constitutional Convention and it was right as Michigan was kind of changing from an agricultural focused state to an urban focused state that they realized the constitution was kind of outdated and they wanted to change it. This is a very weird thing about politics because it said that 79 counties disapproved of this new constitution and they were all rural because basically the the focus was changing from agriculture to to urban and so the rural people thought there was less in it for them. 79 counties all of which were rural uh, disapproved and voted no on um, on this new constitution of Michigan. Only four counties actually approved it. And those were the four counties right around Detroit. <laughs> so it was like Wayne County was one of them. And so only four approved and 79 disapproved, but it still passed and they got the new constitution. Um, okay, then there was this thing called the OPEC oil embargo, which... I might do a, an episode about later, but um, basically it was an, like it sounds an oil embargo, which definitely affected auto sales. It led to a 23% drop in auto sales in 1974, which hit Detroit very, very hard and Michigan as a whole. Obviously it was making so many of the cars in America that if 23%, like if sales dropped 23%, it would devastate um, Detroit. So they then realized they have to diversify the economy. And so they tried to do that over the coming years. 
Okay, now you might have heard that Detroit also went bankrupt, which was like one of the first cities to go bankrupt. And I looked up why. Didn't go too much into this, but because there's a pretty simple explanation. I'm sure you can get more in depth with it, but the simple explanation is there was $18 billion in long-term debt. Most of this was caused by pension and healthcare benefits. And it just comes down to the fact that all of Detroit was built on the auto industry. And as that declined, the infrastructure crumbled. You can't have a city that was meant for like, what was it? I mean, just millions and millions and millions of people down to like 700,000. At one point, there was not very many people in Detroit at the um, like depths of the auto industry when it was kind of crumbling. And so, so many people moved out of Detroit and the infrastructure just could not take it. And um, it crumbled. So there was just not enough money and they went bankrupt. That would also be an interesting podcast episode because I wonder what led to that. Like, was it just, was it kind of inevitable because everyone left the city or was it just a lot of mismanagement? But that was the the explanation I found. Um, okay. And then for the last part of this, I'm just going to go over like the fun stuff, which is what are the state symbols? I always love learning about state symbols and uh, here are Michigan's state symbols. So the flag, it's a classic state symbol, but there have been three since statehood was adopted. The latest one was adopted in 1911 and there are three mottos that appear. E pluribus unum, which is from many one, tubor, which means I will defend, and I'm not going to pronounce the last one, but it means if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you, which I don't even know really what that means, but that is a reference to the Upper Peninsula. So um, that was in 1911. Okay, then the state tree is a white pine. Um, It's a symbol of lumber production. The gem is a chlorostrolite, also known as the green star stone, and that is found in the UP. The state wildflower is a dwarf lake iris, and those are endangered, actually, and they only grow on the shores of the Great Lakes. The game mammal is a white-tailed deer, which we see a million of, and they're so cute and there's always like 10 that show up in the backyard of um my husband's parents house which i love to see the state fossil which i wasn't even aware that states had a fossil really was a mastodon a reptile is a painted turtle and a group of fifth graders it said realized that there was no state reptile and so they chose the painted turtle so that was actually like a fifth graders choice (laughs) Um, the state fish is a brook trout. It was just a trout and then it got updated by the Senate or something like the state government, uh, to the brook trout to be more specific to, uh, the trout that is native to Michigan. The state stone is the Petoskey stone. There's a state soil, which is the Kalkaska sand. It's a very specific blend of like rocks to make this sand. Um, The state bird is the American robin, which I love, and the state flower is an apple blossom. So that is the history of Michigan. I learned a lot. I hope you also did. If you ever have a chance to visit Michigan, I would highly recommend. We fly into Detroit and then it's like an hour, you know, a little, eh, like an hour and a half away um, to where we stay, but like 
there's a lot of great places on the way that are rural. If you like being out in nature, being out with farms, I love seeing farms so much. And if you like that, go to Michigan and just drive a little bit outside of Detroit. So um, I would highly recommend, the dream would be to buy a vacation house there and just go back for like three months out of the year. I think that would be so fun and just amazing. I love it out there. But um, if you are a Michigander, drop me a comment. And um, if you are not, still drop me a comment. Um, go follow me on Instagram at Abby Rancor. Go on YouTube, subscribe, all that good stuff. Abby Rancor. Um, I'm just Abby Rancor everywhere. So go follow me. I um, The Bible episode hopefully will be coming out on the same day as this, but if it's not, that will be coming out shortly. So um, if you haven't already, go read First Chron or Second Chronicles 10 to Ezra 3. And that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I appreciate you being here and uh, I hope you have a great one. Bye everyone.